We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. And welcome to the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot, Tim and Paul will be discussing the 2-2 draw against Tottenham at White Hart Lane. Uh, much improved performance, I thought. Team looked better balanced with Arsenal Wenger making a few changes to the starting lineup. Welbeck started up front. Mohamed Elneny alongside Francis Coquelin. And uh, Ramsey on the right. It's um, a system I've been, been hoping for for a little while now. And... Um, I like the look of it. Uh, it, would, it would have been nice to see it over 90 minutes, though. But unfortunately, Francis Coquelin took matters into his own hands and um, and committed a silly foul, you have to say, when um, he should have stayed on his feet. But that's that's the risk you take, because that's the kind of player he is. And, you know, most of the times he makes tackles like that. As I wrote on the match review, he's the kind of player with um, Laurent Coscioni who like who like to take risks and make challenges and for makes them the players they are. So, unfortunately... Uh, sometimes it goes wrong, and um, we paid the price. But it was great to see us fighting back after going 2-1 behind. Uh, that was quite frustrating, really. Being a goal up, I was just hoping against hope we could just like defend as a team and, and keep them out, but it didn't happen, did it, really? Uh, but it was good to see some fight back, and I thought, you know, at 2-2, we had a good chance to win the game, you know? We had a lot of attacking players on the pitch. We looked quite dangerous. But anyway, we hand you over to the guys. Enjoy the podcast. And back after um, the whole city. Rush of blood to the cock's head lands club in trouble. 
But enough about Adam Johnson. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and I do apologize profusely for that lad banter style opening, but it's really all I could think of. Uh, I am joined by the usual motley crew of Tim and Paul to discuss what was a very heated and interesting, if not perfect, North London derby. Uh, but we'll get stuck into all of the match details, including the the ramifications of the outcome and all that. First, let me do the professional thing and introduce them. Uh, you know what? Fuck it. Let me introduce me. <laughs> I'm Elliot. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Did I say that already? I probably did. Anyway, Paul is here. You heard him laughing. Let's introduce him. Find him on Twitter at Posing in My Pants. Hello, Paul. Woohoo! Woohoo. Yeah, well, yeah. All right. Uh, and fresh off surviving the North London Derby, Tim, you can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. You can hear him on the Arsenal uh, podcast that we know as the Arsecast. He was brilliant on it, I thought. Excellent discussion last week. You can read him on Ars Blog, and you can find him here periodically. Hello, Tim. Hello there. All right, let's do this. Before we touch on the match, one of the things that uh, not everybody gets to experience, not even every London Arsenal supporter gets to experience, is going to White Hart Lane for North London Derby, and Tim's been doing it for a long, long time. In case you don't know, Tim goes home and away all the time, never misses. And this is a really unique experience. So, Tim, maybe you can give us the quick, um, for those of us who have never gone, uh, detailed of what it's like to go to uh, White Hart Lane for the North London Derby? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, intimidating is the word that I would use. I mean, you, you've got to be quite sensible. You can't, if, if you wear any colours or anything red and white, um, you're going to be subjected to some level of violence. That's almost almost certain. So, I mean, it's, it's an absolute no-no to do that. <clears throat> and every time I scan the away end and see people doing it, I think, yeah, you've never been here before, and you'll probably not do that again. Um, so it's you know it's 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 very intimidating. No, for the most part, you know, intimidating in a quote unquote good way, if that makes sense. You know, there's there's obviously there's a lot of tension. The two sets of supporters don't like each other, which is absolutely fine. Um, that's one of the things that's so attractive and appealing about this game. Um, there are quite a few people who go too far the other way and I'm sure people saw on social media um, some of the images of Arsenal fans going into the stadium and you know Spurs fans trying to attack them on their way in and things like that and for, for people who go to the North London Derby at White Hart Lane you know those images aren't shocking that's just part of the course that's just what happens um, and on the way out you know you come out um, on a fairly narrow street before you hit the Tottenham High Road and after the game, that can be very, very scary because you're kind of just split by the police um, in a little line down the road before you hit the long high road. And uh, that that kind of minute or so that you walk down there can be very, very intimidating. On this occasion, it was fine. The police did a really good job and they just kept the Tottenham supporters completely away from the away turnstiles. Um, so it wasn't quite as bad this time. Um, it... There was, there was quite a lot of trouble before the game um, upon entry into the stadium. But again, that always happens. And so I I got in a good hour before the game because I know and understand that that's going to happen. And I don't really have a great desire to, you know, be spat at and have coins thrown at me and things like that. Um, it's just something I'd much rather avoid. So um, I get into the stadium early. They, the police took, I think, a fairly sensible decision to serve alcohol in the concourse beforehand, but not while the game was going on and not at half time. 
um, which again I think was to try and encourage people to get in early. Well, once you're inside, it's it's incredible, really. The atmosphere is like no other game you'll go to. It's very tetchy, it's very nervous, um, but it's very very loud from you know both sets of supporters, and uh, it, it, it's it's largely it's it's a great but terrifying experience, and um, I I kind of love it and hate it all at the same time. I don't think it really brings the best out in me as an individual inside a football ground because I'm so nervous and so anxious and so fraught that I think, you know, I, I'm very, very quick to anger, um, more so than usual. And you can imagine, you know, when, when Coquelin was sent off, I was kicking chairs and stuff like that. And that's, you know, that that's, that's not really, we all like getting lost in the emotion of things, but that's, that's not really a proportionate response, but I can't help it. It's just like, at the surface of my skin throughout the whole game. And there's something kind of thrilling about that. And then there's something that's also um, perhaps I'm slightly embarrassed in retrospect, but it's, it, it's an incredible experience. It's definitely the standout fixture to attend as an Arsenal fan. But at the same time, if you told me I had to miss one game a season, I wouldn't think too hard before I took out White Hart Lane because it, it is quite dangerous as well. Well, that sounds terrifying and exhilarating uh, in equal measure. Um, I think that it's interesting because living in America and, and being an American sports fan, you know, at least a, of a passing nature, I wouldn't say that I have a club that I support with the fervor that I do Arsenal, but I certainly follow American sports. I'm not aware of any environment or experience that, could be construed as similar. I mean, do you have any just quickly thoughts on why that level of, of animosity and, and sometimes raising the level of physical violence exists? Is it the proximity? Is it the length of the, of the rivalry? What do you think has led to, to the intensity of, of that hate? It's, it's a little bit of both. It is the proximity. Also, you know, Arsenal and Tottenham, they play each other every single year. We're always in the same division. So, you know, there's a lot of history to it. There's a lot of incident to it. Um, and, you know, the, the, there is something special. Everyone thinks that their derby as a supporter, right, is the best in the world. But I think what sets the North London derby apart is because there's this kind of long-standing geographical thing behind it that, you know, we invaded their turf um, effectively. And there's still quite a lot of, bitterness um you know as a result between the two teams and obviously as an arsenal fan i'm gonna say this but we invaded their turf and we're more successful than they are and that's that's objectively that's a fact and that kind of hurts you know um mm -hmm. but at the same time at the same time you know it's, it's by no means a one-way thing uh, arsenal fans really really dislike spurs and spurs fans a lot and it, it really comes out um, and so, yeah, I, I think it is the proximity. It's since the Sol Campbell thing, I think it's it's really turned up a notch um, since then. And now you've got a situation where the two teams are a lot closer together than they were ten years ago. And that so there's 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 always like a ramification in terms of the league table, and there definitely was this time. Probably it's the first time in my life that this has been a, a title match. Um, so I, I think the Sol Campbell thing really turned the heat up on it. And then after that, and then we won the league there. And obviously that 
you know, that, that gives it a slightly different dynamic. But now the, the two teams are quite level and I think that's turned the ferocity up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, so, I mean, it's it's fascinating for me to hear and as someone who probably will never go to the fixture, if I'm being honest, um, it, I, you know, I love hearing you explain it. I can't say that I would want to be in your shoes, but I certainly uh, admire and to some extent envy the fact that you get to experience that. Um, I got to say, it sounds like nothing else you're going to experience in attending sports, certainly not as a supporter. Um, me... Yeah. Go ahead, both of you simultaneously. <laughs> I, I was going to I was going to make a really, really quick point and just say, let me tell you that winning at White Hart Lane is the best feeling bar none. When you win that derby, it is the best feeling. And when you lose it, it is awful. It's just, there's no in-between. And then there's kissing your sister, which is what happened uh, at the weekend. Paul, you wanted to interject something I assume was going to be witty? Or not? You don't have to, man. Don't be shy. It's your podcast, too. Hello? Hello? Yeah. Am I back? You're back. I don't know where I'm We're all hanging on every word with bated breath. Yeah. yeah. Come hey, on, right. give us a wit- witticism real quick. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, th- as Tim talks through his thing, it was pretty much like that on my sofa too, so, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you should see what me and the dog do pre-match. <laughs> it's pretty gross. Um, okay, so let's let's dive into the match, and just to give sort of a blueprint of what we're going to talk about, we'll discuss the lineup change, we'll discuss... The performance, the key incidents, goals, Coughlin. We'll get to whether the title challenge is now can officially be eulogized um, and then talk about the manager a little bit. I want to get to all of that. And we've already spent 10 minutes uh, hearing Tim do his vanity piece on going to the Derby. Uh, so <laughs> let's dive into the match itself. I'm kidding. Thank you, Tim. Um, so, Paul... He made the change, the manager made the change that we have debated and discussed for so long. Um, rather than coming at it from the, for fuck's sake, what, what took you so long, we can get to that maybe later. How pleased were you to see in this crucial match that the manager changed the midfield, moved Ramsey back into his, his sort of right wide forward position and paired Coughlin and Elneny? So, yeah, I think we finally got our midfield. Um, I think uh, Coquelin and Elneny, um, I mean, there were incidents we will talk about, but while we had the midfield doing what the midfield was supposed to do, um, I think given what we were expecting to face from Tottenham, I mean, they're very good. They, We all know that. They haven't been beaten at home since, I think, the first game of the season. They're intense. They're high pressure. You got to ride that out. I think we, you know, people will say they uh, they had the better of it f- for a long time, and they they kind of had the the uh, advantage over us. But I think it was really close, which was all that we or anybody could expect in in that scenario. They've been itching for this game for a long time. They came out at a hundred miles an hour. Um, you know the the time at which you would expect us to begin to get the upper hand might be by the 70th minute as they tire a little bit as their swarms their three men swarms become more like two and a half men you start being able to play through it dribble through it play around it uh, swing the ball to the other side etc much more easily so i think we weathered the storm really well i think we gave them plenty to think about um i mean by the end of the game even with 10 men we pretty much 
uh, matched them to some degree in terms of possession and passing. So we held up our end, uh, you know, all the way through the first half. And I have to say, I was extremely uh, encouraged by the performance, even if they did have a little bit of the upper hand in terms of who was dictating the play. And, you know, maybe it was always a little bit of part of our plan to ride that out and to hit them on the counter, which is why Welbeck made so much sense. And in many ways, I would say we had the equal of them in terms of dangerous opportunities in the first half. Not necessarily shots, because not all those dangerous opportunities turned into shots. But I was extremely heartened by it. I thought Coughlin Elneny worked really well. Um, I liked Elneny. When I thought about it, he, and I, I look back on his highlights in my head, there weren't many. But I think that's what was so good about it. I think he ebbed and flowed in terms of space, in terms of the little passes, in terms of the tackles. Without doing anything dramatic, I thought he did brilliantly to be whatever it was we needed between Coquelin, Ozil and Ramsey, all of whom dipped in and out of midfield. Obviously, Coquelin stayed there. He was kind of the anchor man. I thought, Ram- you know, at times you would see Ramsey very much part of a midfield three, or Ozil... Uh, going back and giving us four in midfield. And a little later on, you'd see often uh, Alexis coming into midfield. So there was a lot of movement and fluidity. And I really felt, and I can't prove this, I feel like El Neni was the difference maker. He was the the counterweight, the balance. Um, He did a little bit of everything that was required uh, throughout the game. And uh, i got to say... you know, it may not have been the result we dreamed of, but given all possible scenarios, I have to say I fucking loved it. I, this was a cracker of a game, a brilliant game. We had a midfield. There was no bottling here. I thought we were very much up to them. And after we got that goal, I thought we were the better team. So that was my take. And I think it's... I, I'm going into a lot of different areas, spilling into different areas here, but I think it was all because of the midfield. I agree. Look, we did bottle it in the sense that what Coughlin did is bottling it. But well, I take your point. It, the rest it, it, it would be we'll a strange definition of bottling. I, it was a rush of blood to the... I mean, you could see, you saw it in the Swansea game. He was all charged up shouting at Bellerin at one point. I think the problem is when a young guy in that position thinks he can be the difference maker... And I yeah, think we'll, we'll come to it. We'll, we'll come, come to, to it. Because we're going to spend a segment on, yeah. on Francis fucking Coughlin. Um, so, Tim, I mean, I, I think it's too important a topic not to move on to the next one. So I want to get your take on it. I mean, the way I look at the, the biggest difference that the Coughlin Elneny midfield gave us, obviously, is it allowed Ramsey to come into the midfield and create that extra body that's been missing. Um, the other thing it meant is that Ramsey was able to complete only 60% of his passes, uh, and have seven and be dispossessed seven times, and for that not to really hurt us, if you see what I'm saying. I mean, if 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 I told you Ramsey was dispossessed seven times and only completed sixty percent of his passes in a two man midfield, you'd think we'd lost seven nil. Um, but Ramsey was able to be in position to score the goal he did, be in position to nearly, you know get on the end of some other moves and know that there was that platform behind him and also able to come into midfield when we were in possession and we moved the ball 
pretty quickly. I mean, one of the things we've seen in recent weeks is every player taking that extra touch. And I thought we got away from that a little bit. Um, you know, you look at El Nenny, he was only dispossessed once. He completed 80% of his passes on a day when the team only completed 75%. So all in all, he had a pretty clean game, so to speak. How uh, amazed were you that the manager finally came around to this change? And how uh, excited were you to see it before the kickoff? Um, it's, it's really, really weird because he had to do something. He could not pick the same midfield again. Well, we've, just, we've been saying that in fairness. Right? Yeah, For, yeah. yeah. And, and yet when the news came through and it happened, I thought, you know, maybe it's just the nerves of the occasion. But I thought, oh, it, it almost looks kind of desperate. But then, you know, desperate times do call for desperate measures. Just in the basis, not that I think Elman is a bad player at all. And I was... I, I share what you guys think. I thought he was very impressive. I thought... Um, well, he's hardly been involved, right? I mean, this yeah, is a guy yeah, no, who exactly. barely made a squad and now he's starting away in an NLD. It, exactly. And that that's that's because we're in a desperate situation. You don't drop someone into their first ever Premier League start. A guy who's sometimes not even on the bench, who's not been coming on. Um, you don't drop him into a game like that unless you're a bit desperate. But... We did need to do it, and it did work. And one of the things that Elneny was really good at was just filling the gaps. Um, so when Ramsey came off the right, he went over to the right. And and, uh, and and defensively, and, you know, he was popping off passes first time. Like, he doesn't dwell on the ball, and that's something that's caught my eye about his game. He, he delivers first time if he can. And I think, you know, if that's his style, he'll really fit in with Arsenal. The, the biggest difference he made was even in the first half an hour when Spurs were really piling the pressure on, you look at the Tottenham midfield and it's not really like a midfield at all because you've got Eric Lamella plays between the lines, Christian Eriksen plays between the lines, Deli Alley plays between the lines, Harry Kane gets a lot of support from that midfield and what we had to do was really shut off that area between nominally where our midfield and defence was uh, or sorry, our midfield and defences, and it's just very clear that the way the midfield's been playing lately, that's, that's been our weakest area, and it's Tottenham's strongest. So we had to do something to address that, and I, I thought it was a bold move, um, and I thought it absolutely works because I thought we had the midfield, even with ten men. I thought we were we were really holding it, um, and I still fancied us for a goal at the end, um, to be quite honest. And yes, you're right; it reduced the impact of Ramsey because he's a risk taker and you need players like that and, you know, it reduces the impact. And the other thing, you know, Welbeck really made it work as well because Welbeck can go into those wide positions. So you've got Ramsey kind of coming off the right-hand side and Welbeck's very good at drifting, drifting over there to kind of fill in the space. So it was very fluid and it, it's still quite risky to do that sometimes because... Sometimes, sometimes, you know, someone will vacate the space over on over on the flank, and you know, Spurs actually had a very good chance just before we went one 0 up, and that came from Kyle Walker because um, Tottenham really used their fullbacks. That's another thing they use. Um, so, you know, th- this was Wenger paying Tottenham a lot of respect. This was set up specifically to counter Tottenham's big strengths, but. He had to do that because of the situation we're in, because of the players we're missing, because of the level of dysfunction we showed, because of our confidence. And it, it was the right call. It was absolutely the right thing to do. And I thought it 
worked very well and it would have worked much better had one of our senior players not you know put the gun to his temple in the way that he did so uh, it was uh, how I felt before the match I thought oh god this looks a bit like a last throw of the dice kind of thing it looks a little bit desperate but he had to do something and when you look at his options it it was the most logical thing and credit to him it worked yeah I mean it's it's interesting when Ramsey is in a midfield two, you see everything that sucks about Aaron Ramsey as a player, and you start to say, like, this guy maybe isn't good enough. Maybe I mean, that's how I see him. When he's in that midfield two, I see him as loose with the ball, dwelling on the ball, positionally undisciplined, tactically unaware. I see all these negative sides to the game. What you get with a Coughlin-Elneny midfield and Ramsey over there on the right is that you get the Ramsey who can make a difference, who can get into the box and finish it with an improvised, you know, brilliant piece of technique. You get the Ramsey who can try four back heels that don't come off without that being a gun to your head. You can have him take an extra touch or dribble or play the more extravagant pass. And I think you have to put Aaron Ramsey somewhere on the pitch where he can be a risk taker and, and try things that when he's in central midfield in a two simply you can't get away with trying. I mean, is, I that, think, is that fair? I think I'd counter that by saying none of that was ever a problem when he was playing with Mikel Arteta. Um, none of that was an issue because he had a player that was good at moving the ball who basically did all the things that Aaron Ramsey, that aren't Aaron Ramsey's strengths. So, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that magically when Arteta was there, I mean, listen, I'm not saying that Arteta is the greatest player ever. A player. Well, he had 100 touches, he'd play 100 passes, and he was the first person to receive the ball from the back four, yeah, as exactly. opposed to Ramsey. A player of that ilk um, is what Ramsey needs, and all of a sudden those kind of frustrating things about his game seem to melt away. So really what he needs is a complementary partner in there. But with but, our existing but to be options, fair, we don't have that. So- just to be fair as a counterpoint, I, I think if you look back on that season, you know, that was one of those seasons where we shipped a lot of goals and it was one of those, their first shot on, you know, the first shot on goal, we conceded a lot of goals and we led the league, I believe, in errors leading to goals. And I do still think that comes down to the fact that when there was a miscontrol, when there was a loose touch and Ramsey was up the pitch or trying the extravagant, the punishment was more severe. Um, you know, we, we did concede a lot of goals. Um, and a lot of goals from first chances and from turnovers. And, you know, again, I'm not picking on Ramsey. I'm just saying that I think the things that are really good about his game flourish when he doesn't have the responsibility of starting a move and having to be a little bit more careful, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and, and you could make an argument that we've seen players like that in Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard, and then you get in all these tiresome, tedious comparisons. Um Paul, we, we took the lead. Not Well, I don't think we were outplaying them. You, you know, it's it's a shame, and we'll get to this when we talk about Coughlin being sent off, but the way you want to play Spurs is ride out their initial high-energy pressing and beat them late in the game when they're worn out. Yeah. We had 10 men late in the game when they were worn out, and we still almost got to them anyway. But we did ride the early wave, and, and we got through it, and we got our rewards with a Ramsey goal. And it was an impudent, creative, brilliant finish. I thought Bellerin was definitely passing. What did you think of the move, the ball to Ramsey and the finish? I thought it was great. I thought it was great movement. You know, that was Ramsey at the center forward spot. You know, he he, he didn't just... We talk about late runs. That was an early run. He was standing at that spot for a while waiting for the ball to come to him. Uh, definitely a pass by Bellerin. 
very intelligent, maybe a little bit behind Ramsey. Well, obviously a little bit behind Ramsey. Um, just a brilliant flick. I think flick. he's second on the team in, in assists now. Yeah. Tied for second? Yeah, I mean, uh, impressive. I guess, I guess that's good. <laughs> it's probably a very worrying statistic, but I, I guess that's good. Um, good for him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, eight years of Ramsey back heels and flicks finally paid off. Only joking. I don't think you can take that out of his game, and I don't think you'd he want to. He had some really bad back heels in the game, to be fair. He did. Um, one the or one two on the counterattack. <laughs> yeah, I don't know he had too much option. You know, that was a ball that was behind him. It was a bad back flick, and it exposed us. But he had to do something, and he didn't quite pull it off. And, you know, it, to me, this is just my way of looking at it. At that stage in the game, they were pressurizing everything, and that was kind of their strongest period, and we almost matched them, and some stuff did and didn't come off, but you you know, you just got to gotta fucking go for it, and so I was okay with that. There were one or two other back heels that weren't all his, and I think yeah. that was the tempo, the pressure of the game. When we counterattacked, we had to go for it, you know, take your best shot. That was his best shot. It was a little off. Oh, well. Um, so I was okay with it. Um, you know, a, a, a little bit of defense of him in terms of turnovers and stuff. I, I, I mean, not that anybody was hammering him. I mean, you, 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 you portrayed it in the positive light it should be. But it was also, you know, he was the guy who was going to have three guys swarming on him. So uh, it was hard for anybody not to lose the ball if they were going to do something with it. Um, and I still think we did really well. Uh, I wrote a bit uh, a couple of weeks ago on Espresso Arsenal, the idea that when Welbeck, Welbeck came back fully, he would change who Arsenal was uh, with, with the right five or six players around him. And I specifically talked about this game and us being able to match them in terms of intensity. Um, obviously, they're going to be that little bit better at that because that's what they do all year, and they're at home with their crowd behind them. But I think, I think it really did come to pass. I think, you know, with Alexis Welbeck and Ramsey in that front three, and with Coquelin, El Nenny, and Ozo's pretty crafty. You know, that's a really good front-footed uh, team, and when. Just as we got that goal and from there on in, we took it to a new level. As This was a team rattled in terms of confidence that pretty much matched Spurs. And once we got that goal, uh, I thought we came alive. I thought we were fucking great. And, you know, that, uh, fingers crossed, that's pretty much what I'd like to see through to the end of the season. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of things that, for me, at least, were were signs of life. I think the Coughlin El Nenny axis gave us a little more shape. I thought it allowed Ramsey to be more effective the way he wants to be effective without compromising the the solidity of the team. I thought that Alexis looked the best he's looked in a while, and that may be down to the fact that there was a little bit more of an established midfield organized, disciplined midfield. I think Danny Welbeck gives us an X factor. If we're not going to have a clinical, world-class, quote-unquote, striker, you might as well have one who runs everywhere, fights for every ball, and just gives defenders fits. Um, Tim, actually, let's let's come to that for a second. Yeah. We've been crying out for, for better forward play. I think it's fair to say that both Giroud and Walcott have been disappointing of late. 
I know that Welbeck is never going to be Robert Lewandowski when it comes to his finishing, but what did you think of his performance, and what are your thoughts on him generally as Arsenal's center forward for the foreseeable future? Um, well, I, I said to my wife in, in the stadium when we, were, when we were watching, I just said, he, he is the perfect striker if he could score more goals, which sounds like such an such a weird thing to say. No, he's, I totally get it. He's he's a brilliant footballer, and his movement is so intelligent. And the way he was running those channels, you've only got to look at the first goal. You know, that's that's him. That's all him. Just running that channel, recognizing the weakness of the centre backs that he's playing against, because Tottenham's fullbacks commit, and he knew to attack those spaces, and he kept doing it and kept doing it. Um, and I thought his overall play particularly in the first half when he was very isolated and really, really fighting for scraps. Um, and you really saw it. It's been said very often by myself and many others because it's quite obvious that he offers a kind of hybrid between Giroud and Walcott because he's not quite as strong or as good in the air as Giroud, but he's good at that. And he's not quite as quick as Walcott, but he's quick. So he combines their best attributes. And, and I thought he was the absolute ideal striker for this game. Um, and I, but you know the the thing that that made me make that comment was that just after we went one nil up, I think it was Urzel knocked that beautiful first time ball into him, and you know Welbeck had been doing all this amazing selfless work, and then just after the goal, you know Urzel just knocks in a lovely little through ball, and you're like, right, go enjoy yourself, and he just took, he just took a bad touch. Um, and couldn't well, it was kind of like an inside touch, right? Yeah. Too much to the to the defender. I'm not sure which was it, Alderweireld. Yeah, Alderweireld. It doesn't really just, matter with their their two centre backs. Some cunt in white. <laughs> so he he just couldn't take it into a stride, and you just think you you've done everything else so perfectly for everybody else, but like when it came for you, to, the, the time came for someone to give you a bit of service and for you to have some fun. Um, you know. He just couldn't quite sort his feet out. But, I mean, I don't really want to dwell on that because I thought he was so good. And I think you hit the nail on the head um, where, listen, Theo Walcott's not scoring goals and he's not contributing. Olivier Giroud's contributing a bit more, but he's not scoring goals. Um, Danny Welbeck, you know, I, well, he's, he's got two goals since he came back. So that's, that's pretty decent. Um, he really doesn't look rusty. He really doesn't look like he's been away. He's tired understandably, towards the end of, you know, the games. He's played two very intense games as well, Manchester United away, Tottenham away, and that shows how quickly the manager has understood what he can actually bring us. And uh, I, I thought it was an excellent performance, and I'm totally with you in terms of I don't think he's going to, you know, go on a massive goal-scoring streak, but I don't think Olivier Giroud or Theo Walcott are going to do that either. And if you're looking for contribution. Well, Welbeck will give you much more and as well as what you said about Alexis Sanchez and I completely agree I thought we were somewhere much closer to the real Alexis and Alexis just seems to enjoy playing with a more mobile striker and you know when he first arrived at Arsenal Giroud was injured and he was playing with Welbeck and that's when he showed his best form and it may just be a, a big coincidence because Alexis did show signs against Swansea that his range is coming back and he was pretty unlucky to hit the woodwork twice. Um, and, you know, this time he got his finish right. Um, but he just seems to play much better with that type of striker. And 
if you're talking about getting the best out of our best players, Welbeck, I think, has a good partnership with Ozil. There's a good partnership with Alexis Sanchez. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he, for me, he should be... I, we've still got to handle him with kid gloves a bit, but for me, he's he's got to be first choice in that role at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think if you look at it, the one thing we always say about Theo is that Theo contributes more without the ball, whereas Olivier Giroud contributes more with the ball. Um, but the funny thing is, Welbeck does both, right? I mean, he can make the runs that trouble defenders and has the pace to get him behind. But like Giroud, I mean, Welbeck had 41 touches against Spurs in 84 minutes. Giroud had 47 in 90 minutes against Swansea at home. So Welbeck is getting as involved as Giroud, dropping deep, receiving the ball, fighting for it, you know, getting others involved and and being a part of our possession in a way Theo doesn't. He doesn't waste it, but but he can run behind the way Theo can and the way Giroud can't. and, you know, to your point, and I think to everybody's point, now if he can just find a way to score 35 goals a game, that'd be brilliant. Um, so we, we got to, I want to move along because we still have so much, I think, to talk about vis-a-vis the season as a whole in light of the result. But I, I we have to get to some of the other key moments and we'll jump ahead to Coughlin. So we come out of halftime, you got to be feeling great about leading 1-0. Um, I think... We just about deserved it, um, but I did. I agree with the manager for once. At eleven versus eleven, I actually didn't see them coming back into it. I saw them tiring, and I saw holes opening up and opportunities coming for us. I actually thought, you know, when we came out of halftime, I could see us winning two nil more than I could see it coming back to one one, um, which maybe is you know uh, rose colored glasses, but that's just how I felt about it. And then Francis well, Cochrane. Well, to made, be fair, fair, Elliot, it's not very often Arsenal makes you feel like that, is it? No, it, it isn't. Um, but but I really did, and I think knowing you know that that we had weathered their early storm. Now the irony, of course, is Tottenham. You know, I talk about them fading and their late fatigue. I think they have the most late goals to to take points in the league. So you know, that's my shit thesis torn to shreds. But um, I I think what Francis Cochran did was incredibly stupid, incredibly selfish, uh, an incredible lack of skill, because I think a part of skill is understanding the moment and what the moment calls for. And he he let himself down, and he let his team down, and I just... At at that moment, my attitude was, fuck off out of our club, please. I never want to see you again. Now, I realize that is the ultimate emotional reaction, but... For you, Paul, how devastating was that? <laughs> how bad a decision was it? And what were you feeling at the moment that it happened? Uh, oh, I thought it was incredibly stupid. I thought Kane played him for a sucker. I think he reeled him in. He knew exactly what he was doing. Coquelin had to stay on his feet. That was the one fucking rule. I mean, if you're going to foul the guy, you know, fouls happen. But let it be, if you like, a an honest foul because you end up going for the ball and it doesn't quite you know just stay on your fucking feet pal uh it was so obvious um you know the extenuating cir- circumstances is uh i think he was all charged up and wanted to make the difference but that's just fucking stupidity here you know uh, i you kind of get a little bit ahead of me there with with some of your re- reaction to it elliot but the thing that really pissed me off about it was 
I read something about uh, Coquelin apologizes after, apologizes after the game. I'm like, oh, good, he gets it. So I read his apology, and it was one of those, you know, I, ha- I used to have arguments with my wife, but we're over this now, about she'd, she'd apologize or I'd apologize, but it was a kind of, but I'm still right kind of apology. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's th- the only apology you should ever give in a domestic environment, yeah. of course. So, or, or the, we, um, I apologize if anyone was offended. Yeah, yeah. That's, my, that's my favorite. I'm sorry you were upset. <laughs> okay, so this was one of those. It was, uh, I apologize. I was sure I could get the ball, but I didn't. And I'm sorry yeah, to the fans of the Yeah, as if the mistake the was in execution, not in intention. And that's why I wanted to cry, because... He the, doesn't get it. That, yeah, you don't fucking get it, pal. It was your whole conception of what you were about to do then. You're, you're, so, you're like 180 degrees off what was required. Now, again, that's, in the, that's still in the heat of the moment after the game. Film, you know, I hope... He has a long, hard look at it. I hope uh, the dressing room puts him in no doubt uh, what the real mistake was, and he gets his shit together. Because, to be fair to him, he he kind of has a reputation of being wild and whatever, and, and maybe he is, and maybe he's just been lucky, but he actually hasn't had a lot of disciplinary problems. He's had one or two near misses, but given his style of play... It's amazing he hasn't had more, but maybe that's maybe it's the old small sample size. It wasn't that small, but small enough to hide the fact that some of this shit is coming. So he needs to get his fucking shit together. Maybe El Nenny in midfield uh, beside him will calm him down a bit because he doesn't have to do it all himself, and he doesn't have to be fucking Superman with his underpants on the outside, which I think is a little bit of his complex at the moment. Yeah. Um. Well, Tim. Let's let's talk a little bit more about Francis fucking Coughlin. Um, first of all, just real quick, on the emotional side of things, in the ground, in the moment, how, what was the reaction to, to what he had just done? Um, I wanted to kill him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, yeah. I was absolutely just yelling at the top of my voice, you absolute fucking knobhead. And the There's thing was, no excuse for it, right? No. no excuse. And the thing was, the second the situation unfolded, I could see that he was going for the slide tackle, and I just yelled, "Don't!" And it was, <laughs> it was uh, as soon as I saw it, you I couldn't saw, have yelled louder. Come on, Tim, why do you even go to the games? <laughs> in, in, in my defence, it was at the other end of the ground. I just went, "Don't!" And it's oh, it was just absolutely horrendous. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to kill him at that moment. And I, and I'm a bit conflicted about what I think that means for the team. Because on one hand, I mean, I thought we were in complete control of the game at that point. I even thought we'd started the second half well. Um, but at that, at that moment, it's a bit, is that Arsenal shooting themselves in the foot again? Because it, and it kind of is because it's a player making a stupid, needless mistake. On the other hand, it wasn't like a collective brain fart this time, like we saw against Swansea and Manchester United, where we just saw error after error after error from collections of players and a, you know, a, a not a formulated team response, whereas this was an individual. And he was pretty much the only one on the day to make a stupid error like that. But at the same time, this is one of our main players, and he's 25 years old now. 
And, you know, should our, a guy who is pretty much ever-present, who goes in the team when he's fit, be making errors like that in, you know, in situations like this? And he, he's cost us two points, to my mind, and that could be pretty devastating because we're eight points behind the top with nine games left. And that's, you know, we, we got it back a little bit in the end, but that's that's a huge penance um, that he's cost us. And it doesn't seem likely that he's got the time to, to allay for that error um, this season. So yeah. it's, you know, there's, there's a lot on him. And I completely agree with, you know, his comments afterwards when he said, I thought I could get the ball. It's not about that because... You know, shouldn't that, be making that challenge. Yeah, and Harry, Harry Kane, um, in a footballing sense, is quite a wily character, um, and he will take every advantage there, as you would want your striker to do. And he, he must have just been mentally rubbing his hands together when he saw Coughlin charging into him. And at, at, in that area of the pitch as well, it's not like he was on the edge of the box lining up for a shot. You can shepherd him down the line there, or like Paul says, Maybe if you're going to trip him up, stay on your feet or something or give him a little nudge or a little shove or something. Because we saw Eric Dyer do that on a second yellow card. Um, and he really should have been sent off. But he should have been sent off. Yeah, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that because I think, what are we going to do? We're all just yeah. going to stand here and nod in agreement that he should have gone, right? So. But yeah, yep. like Paul says, if you're going to make the foul, make a much more sensible foul than that. You you can shoulder him. You can yeah. you know you you can take a little swing of the leg on your feet, and you probably get away with it. But you can't go in, you know, with one foot off the ground, sliding in at the sideline. I mean, you just can't do it. I, here's my problem with Coughlin. No one's ever going to mistake him for Zidane. Okay, so he's a guy who's in the squad because he's our disciplined holding midfielder, right? He's the guy who's supposed to be in the right spot, shield the back four, make the tackles, do the dirty work. And if that's why you're in the squad, if you're in the squad to be that guy and you're not the guy playing key passes and you're not the guy starting attacks and you're not the guy maintaining possession and you're really not a great passer and you're really not a great dribble and you're really not a great shooter, then you have to get your defensive contributions right. You have to be the defensive brain of the midfield. And my problem with with Francis Coughlin is I just don't think he's intelligent enough a footballer to make up for his limitations technically. And, you know, I watched the Dortmund-Bayern game, and you watch guys like Xabi Alonso and Gundogan play the defensive midfield role for those teams to the extent that that's all they do. And you just see incredible intelligence, technical superiority, tactical understanding. Um, and it... It really is, to me, a stunning comparison against the guy that we want to play at the heart of our midfield, presumably for the next five, six, seven years. And I just don't know that you can go on and compete at the top level with someone who, in my mind, is that limited a footballer. Now, I will fully admit that some of this is my take on the situation in light of how angry I am about what he did. But I I genuinely feel that that's a position we can improve. I mean, Tim, is it fair to say that's a position we should be looking to improve? Yeah, I think so. I I think really you look at the big clubs in Europe and most of them don't have this type of defensive midfield player anymore. Most of them have all players there. You know, the the big clubs have players that circulate the ball. And, you know, listen, I'm I'm not going to revise what's happened with Coquelin in the last year. It's been 
immense and I'm not going to pretend that he wasn't absolutely key for us at the end of last season and he formed a very good partnership with Kazola but I've always always thought that we should have we should have been looking at buying somebody there that can do um, what Mikel Arteta did broadly but better um, and I, I think for, for a team like Arsenal as well that's that's so so important and when I look at player like Aaron Ramsey who I think is a terrific midfield player and I look around the squad and I think there's not one player he can play with in his favourite position and um, I, I just find that a little bit balmy um, to be honest. And It's not the right way to build a squad if you consider Ramsey to be an important part of it. it. Exactly, exactly and Ramsey is an important part of it because he almost always starts um, so he's obviously a very big part of it and yet we haven't done anything for him um, then whether you think he's good enough for that treatment, that's you know that's that's up to you really. But Arsene Wenger clearly does because he keeps playing him. So, but you can't have both, right? Like you can't have Ramsey be one of the first names on the team sheet if you're going to pick Francis Coughlin every game exa- as well. Exactly, exactly. So it does it does come back to what was the plan back in August, um, which was, you wrote on quite brilliantly, I thought. Yeah, it's just like what what you know. Were you banking on Coquelin and Cazorla playing 38 Premier League games and Aaron Ramsey playing on the right 38 times? I mean, you know, you only have to take one link out of that chain and, and we've seen the, the, sorry, the, um, the consequences of that. So it does make you think you gave up on Arteta very, very quickly, not incorrectly because it's very obvious that he's struggling to contribute physically. But So you, he must have had in his mind that Arteta was close to the knacker yard and he, mm-hmm. he's made Mikel Arteta, the, you know, one of the fulcrums of his team for four years. And then to not get someone in who does the same job just doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. Look, I, I think history will look back on the Francis Coughlin era as we had no one whose age started with a two who could remotely defend at all in midfield. And Francis Coughlin came in at a time when the midfield was so vulnerable and just did the important dirty work. He sat, he he, he made interceptions, he made tackles, he did the things no one else could do and he had the athleticism no one else had to play in that role. Um, and, and like you, I don't want to take away from the importance of him doing that at a time when no one else could, but I don't think that means he deserves, because I don't like the word deserves in sport, he deserves to just have that role be his now. Not not if we want to play the kind of football I think we want to play. Uh, Paul, after we went down to 10 men and lost really the guy who would be that interceptor, that destroyer in midfield, which is more or less what he is, um, they really battered us for a while which is to be expected. They had a lot of chances. They converted on a chance from a set piece, and then Kane scored a quite brilliant finish. But really, I think Mertesacker should be doing better there. It gives us a chance to quickly touch on Mertesacker and Gabrielle. To me, Per Mertesacker looks like a guy who's playing scared right now, who, for, for whatever the reason, does not seem to have the self-belief and confidence that he once did as a leader of, of this team, you know, out on the pitch and, and behind the scenes. What did you make of, of the way Mertesacker and Gabriel played on the day, in particular Mertesacker's part in Kane's uh, goal that gave them at the time the lead? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree he's hesitant at the moment. Um, and maybe it's a little bit of 
his only issues with confidence. You know, he's got Ospina behind him now, not Czech. He's got Gabriel, not Koscielny. Uh, he's struggled with his own game. Um, so I definitely think there's some hesitance there. And he certainly uh, concocted the situation where um, Deli Alley and Kane suddenly managed to finagle the ball into a position where Kane then hits a wonder strike. But it was a wonder strike. I mean, 19 times out of 20, that situation is just one more annoying thing that happens in a game that's largely forgotten. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, but it's, it's still not a great piece of defending. It's right? not. I mean, and it's not the only, it wasn't the only moment in the game where I thought, uh, look lively, pal. You know, what are you jogging for here? Um, yeah. So it wasn't the only moment. It was one moment in maybe five or six games that's going to get punished like that. But I agree it's indicative of a malaise. Uh, or, you know, he's just, he's a bit off at the moment. Now, the counterpoint to that is, um, although we conceded off a set piece, you know, uh, crosses were a big part of their game. They had a lot of corners. And we've looked pretty dodgy without Purr in the middle there. And generally, we were pretty robust on headers. Anything into the box or in that area between himself and Gabriel. I think largely because of him, um, we were we were pretty good on. And we were generally pretty pretty organized. I mean, Kieran Gibbs, not having played for so long, didn't seem to realize that he was the reason playing Deli Alley on, uh, onside for the first goal, too. So there was a, you know, there was a bit of stuff going on there. Uh, a little bit of snop, sloppiness all around, but I thought generally Per is a he's kind of the north star of the defense in terms of uh, especially with with the changes we saw there. I mean that's three new players uh, mm-hmm. into the mix. I know Gabriel's played a little bit, but he, he, as we've all said, he's pretty rough. So I thought he brought I thought Per brought a lot, but I think he's way off his best by a long way and I think it's problematic it's costing us yeah uh, and by the way we haven't touched on it but really astounding that Gibbs got the start right and totally out of left field there was a calf injury wasn't there was there a small calf injury that's where I read a calf alert is that right Tim yeah. are, you, are you aware of that am I am I um, missing the? I, I actually don't know I was completely surprised in the ground and I've not um I've not kind of looked it up but yeah it did I mean, Nacho wasn't great at Old Trafford. It wasn't brilliant against Swansea either. Not terrible, but slightly below his best. Um, Gibbs certainly hasn't looked like usurping him, though, any time. No, 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 not at all. I, I know I he's not. A, I know you're not a huge fan of his. Um, I, I did, so, just a quick point on that, and I know we won't agree. I thought he was actually very good. I mean, he took on a very defensive role uh, against quick players. I thought he had a really good game, apart from uh, dragging his arse for the Delhi Alley offside, but I put that down to not n- lack of match sharpness as to knowing, hey, it's you, you know kid. What, though? Y- you know what, Paul? What yeah. a perfect counterpoint between two, well, Kieran Gibbs isn't young anymore, 26, but young guys who are supposed to be young talents, Hector Bellerin, who completed basically 80% of his passes, had two assists, really covered the ground well, played the ball, played the man, and, and I thought was was great on the day for the most part. And Kieran Gibbs, who completed 64% of his passes, played 10 long balls, of which only two were accurate, and really didn't contribute to the attack. You know, you look at, at Hector Bellerin and the trajectory of where it looks like he's going, and 
I think it'd be fair to say that's kind of where Kieran Gibbs was supposed to be going, but isn't. Yeah, but still, uh, stats are great. Having watched the game, I thought Kib- Kieran Gibbs really, they had different jobs to do on the day. Um, yeah. I thought Gibbs was really good. That's No, I, I don't think he was f- awful. I, it's just interesting to me watching the, the, you know, if you said we have a young fullback who's going to become a star in this league a few seasons ago, I would have assumed you were talking about Kieran Gibbs. Um, well, he is Hector Bellarilliant. <laughs> oh, well played. Um, okay, okay l- let's wrap up on the match with with how we finished it. And Paul, stay with you just for a second. Um, how impressed were you with the absolute will it took, and and the perseverance, and the the determination? I mean. Those guys must have been exhausted. They're playing 10 versus 11, and I think we finished the game stronger, t- scored the equalizer, could have scored the winner, just from a for a team that has been accused of lacking bottle and lacking mental strength. There's that expression again. How important and impressive was it for you that e- even if it doesn't wind up mattering in the reckoning for the season, that they that they refused to lose this match? I thought it was fucking huge. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it was extremely realistic that we were going to lose this game and look like bottlers. Uh, that was my fucking nightmare before the game. Well, especially down to 10 men. I mean, I know we had the lead at the yeah. time, but once they equalized, yeah. I could have seen it going three, four, five, you name it. And, and we were very much the better team from the point of view of the goal onwards, apart from there was that 10 minutes where we were shit. And there wasn't really a good reason for conceding those two goals. I mean, you should be able to defend with 10 men. Italian teams have done it for decades. but I thought our heads went down a little bit. Yeah. I really think the, be- the belief went yeah. out of the team for a minute. Yeah, I think that was a lapse. You can't put it down to, oh, we've only 10 men. 10 men is fucking plenty to defend a corner. Um, you know... So there isn't really that excuse for that period. But we got our shit together. And I think the difference, you know, I don't buy into the bottling and the spine and the lack of, uh, you know, that's that's a narrative that comes up after the fact. And I think it's really about a team not knowing how to play, how, you know, who's on what, what we're going to do, how we're going to come back at them. I think that day things worked. They knew how to do things. The things they did started to work. There was belief. They believed in their fellow players because shit was working. Passes were going to feet. Uh, they were connecting. They were working the way up the field quickly in counterattacks. You know, the stuff worked. There was belief. Um, there was movement. There was fluidity. And that, you know, it's a, cell, it's a virtuous uh, spiral Circle? upwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no spiral. Yeah, no- no, it was spiral. a spiral because okay, no, you, I, I, I you don't know. That. Uh, and I, I think that – go ahead. Uh, so I think there was some mental fortitude, but really I think setting the team up to play well means they play well, they feel good, and they can believe. It's hard to believe in shit when, when nothing's working, and I think that's been a problem for a few weeks. I think if you stick with the same system that hasn't been working and you send the players out with that same system, those players are going to think this isn't going to work because it hasn't been. So the first step of belief is changing the system and telling the players this new system is going to work because at least they can believe that. Um, so kudos uh, uh, to the manager for I doing it. I agree that to a point you still got to send them out with a better system because it don't take long before you find out that the next thing ain't working. So Yeah, no, that's fair. Better, um, better the system that's only kind of not working. The, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so, so now, Tim, tell Paul that he's wrong. Um, as far as 
the fight, the bottle, the mental strength, the belief that I mean, I'm I am not a believer in a ton of intangibles, but I do think that a team can fall into a rut of beating themselves and and having a losing mindset. How you know, look, games matter absent other circumstances, right? And the North London Derby matters whether it's a battle for relegation or the title. How important was it to you that they showed that fight and determination not to lose the match? Um, and and what do you attribute it to? Uh, I think it's hugely important. Um, I think there were some real green shoots uh, in that performance. And I, I'm a little bit frustrated because I think we should have won. I think we would have were it not for uh, Francis Coquelin's, uh brain fart. Um, I, I, and even uh, when, once Spurs went 2-1 up, my shoulders completely dropped. I thought, well, this game's gotten away from us now. And um, it's it's another intangible, and it's really, really difficult to describe, certainly convincingly. But sometimes in these situations, you just see the players that grow another inch taller. And um, I thought Alexis Sanchez, for example, exemplified that. Mm. You know, I saw him, I you know, I had a look at the players when they were getting the ball back for the centre um, when Harry Kane scored that goal because I didn't want to watch him celebrate and there's <laughs> not a lot, lot else to look at. Um, so you look at your own team because you don't want to see all the celebrations going on around you. And, you know, I, I saw him, he he didn't look beaten to me. Do you know what I mean? Like he didn't, his head wasn't yeah. down. He wasn't, you know, gesticulating. He just, he looked like... He still believed. So, in other words, the opposite of the reaction to Barcelona scoring their first goal. And the opposite of the reaction to Swansea and Manchester United. And we saw that from the whole team. And I I still fancied us to win in that last couple of minutes. I still thought there was a goal in it for us. And Alexi had the chance. And Alexis Alexis didn't just score it. He started that movement, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he was getting across the front line. And it was a great run. And it was a great ball. I think there was space in behind that Spurs defence, and we knew it. Um, he started from I, I, deep, and he he ran the whole way through the midfield and into the the striker role. So, like you say, he was kind of the physical embodiment of getting getting ourselves back into the game from from absolutely. top to tail. And th- and that was a response, and we still looked like we believed we could win the game, um, even with ten men. And I think that's hugely important. That and and I'm definitely feeling I might be leaving myself open to massive heartbreak but I, I feel very enthused by that going forward the yeah. question is whether it's too late that's yeah. the question for me um, it might not be I'm not absolutely writing it off because I know well, let's tackle that let, let, let me ask you because I, I I laid our title ambitions to rest our title chances to rest on Twitter and I'll explain my thought process there and my reaction to it in a moment but for you Given that we are chasing Leicester, we are chasing Spurs, we will be chasing City if you give them a win in their game in hand against uh, Newcastle. It's not just the eight points, but it's three teams. In your mind, with nine games to go, is it really there for us anymore? Yes, yes it is. Um, And I'll tell you why. Talk me through it. (laughs) Make me believe. Have a look at what the table looked like nine games ago. It looked very, very different. We were top of it. Um, there's a clue. So nine games, it doesn't sound like much. And yes, when you look at the absolute facts of it, nine games, eight points, you know, just focusing on Leicester, the leaders, then yeah, that, that sounds pretty bad. Um, Leicester have got a very 
tough last three games. Um, and I still think, and to, to be absolutely fair to them, they look like, to me, the only team that's really got the bottle to do it as much as the quality. I think Tottenham are starting to feel it, the pressure. Um, I spoke to a West Ham fan on my way home from the game on Wednesday, who sat next to me on the train, and he said that they were awful at Upton Park. He said he was expecting all sorts, and it looked like it got to them. And I, I thought that yesterday a little bit. I don't think Spurs looked like they really ever believed that they were going to win the game, other than the two minutes where they got the couple of goals, but they didn't really consolidate it. Within about five minutes of going 2-1 up, it didn't look like 11 versus 10 to me. And whether that's because the pressure's getting to them or whether it's because they're tiring, I don't really know. But I, I think that Spurs might fade. I know I'm massively mm-hmm. tempting fate there. Um, and things look very, very different in April in terms of the pressure. And don't get me wrong, that might tell on us as well. But I still prefer us chasing than leading. Um, but to kind of sum up, the reason it's still there for us is, again, I'd urge you to look at what the Premier League table looked like nine games ago. Um, it's more than it sounds. And the pressure's about to come on. Arsenal are going to be chasing and that takes a little bit of the pressure off of us, I'd say. So I'm not saying we're going to do it, and I'm not convinced we are, but I'm not writing it off yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I applaud you for it. If, if if it doesn't come off, Tim, it's hugely, hugely devastating, isn't it? I mean, in, in the context of J- J- January 18th, we're leading the league. The teams that we really have to stay in front of are Leicester and Spurs. I, I mean... It's devastating if it doesn't come off, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, to reiterate a point I made on the Askcast uh, last week, you know, all those other managers that are in our bracket that have underperformed because they're behind Spurs and Leicester are going to lose their jobs. Yeah, <laughs> some of them already have, um, yep. and that that invites some quite uncomfortable questions. Well, questions I consider uncomfortable because I'm incredibly fond of Arsene Wenger. And yes. I make absolutely no apology for that. And if anyone's got a problem with that, they can fuck off, quite frankly. Um, and so I would never, ever be comfortable with the question of should he keep his job, particularly if I'm not stringently in the camp that I believe he should. Um, which, you know, if we don't win it this year and one of Spurs or Leicester do, then that that's going to create some uncomfortable questions. So, yeah, I... I- I'll let you have a crack at this in a second, Paul, but I'll give you, first of all, I don't think Arsene Wenger is ever going to be sacked. I think he's the kind of man who could look at the situation and determine that it's time for him to step aside, or at least I'd like to believe he is that type of man, and I think he is. But um, a few issues I think I have with our title challenge now. I think, first of all, we're probably in a position where we have to win nine of nine, or at least eight of nine, and to do that, you need people to pop up with timely goals, and as much as there were green shoots... Um, against Spurs. I still don't know that I believe we have the people to pop up with the goals we'll need, which means three points becomes one point, unfortunately, and that's not going to be enough anymore. Um, I think the other thing that's going to hurt is that whatever green shoots we just saw, Tim, it's like the Leicester game. We we beat Leicester and we should have been riding a high, but then we went into the FA Cup and the Champions League, and I think you'd agree that all the energy was drained out of that Leicester high. Yeah. Um, whatever green shoots came out of this game, and there may have been many of them, we could conceivably have two FA Cup games and a Barcelona game before we play in the league again, correct? Yeah. So 
fair to say that the next time we play a league game could be coming off a heavy defeat in Spain? Right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, yeah, but it's yeah. certainly, if you think we can beat Hull, then an FA Cup match at the weekend, then Barcelona in midweek, we could be going back into the league, unfortunately, under less encouraging circumstances. Yeah, quite possibly. I don't think it will be quite the same as, like, well, depending on how the results go, I, because we could be in an FA Cup, another FA Cup semi-final at Wembley. Yes. And nobody expects anything from the Barca game anymore. So short of getting an absolute shellacking, I can't see that mentally really having a big impact because I think it's it's kind of already happened, doesn't it? And it's already been dealt with. And this game it's is... Factored you'd in. hope so. Yeah. So. Yeah, you'd hope so. It's sort of priced into the environment right now. But I mean, I think the other question is, it's one thing to have to leap over one team that's eight points ahead of you and it's Leicester and you think you can chase them down. We have to now be better than three teams the rest of the way. Um, so if even one of those teams goes on a run, we're in trouble. We need three teams to falter, one to falter badly. Um, and and that, that really does, for me, make it hard to see it happening. Um, we also go to West Ham which we know is going to be very difficult. We go to Everton, which I think could be 7-6. to six, Who knows? Um, and we go to City, which if we are still in it at that point, it'd be great. But that's probably going to have to be a win because if it's not a win for us, it could mean that we're looking up at them. So um, here's, here's, here's yeah. my kind of reading of it. I think all of those teams are going to drop points. I think Leicester are going to drop points. I think Spurs will. I think City will. I think they'll all drop enough points. My doubt is whether we pick up enough to capitalize. That's perfectly fair. And I, what I would say to you is green shoots aside, I still don't see enough. If the manager sticks with Coughlin and Elneny, and if he sticks with that system, I think it gives us the best chance to create momentum and go on a run. And if he does it, I think there's a chance. I think being without check for a month, potentially, is also a real worry. Because while Espina made one hell of a great save uh, the other day, I think it's a big step down in talent. So, you know, I... I I can't see it. I would love to see it. I, I will still dream about it a little bit, but I'm I'm kind of starting to protect myself. Paul, where do you come down on our title chances? Yeah, I'm with Tim. Uh, I mean, to some degree, it's in our hands. I know that's a weird thing to say, eight points behind, but either... It's most decidedly not in our hands. Okay, well, <laughs> here's why it's in our hands. It, okay. Because it's pretty binary. Either one of the other teams goes on a run, uh, at, or alternatively, Leicester holds its bottle the whole way through, or they don't. And if they don't, it's in our hands. So, you know, nobody ever wins every game. If they do, I guess they're going to win the, the league. So, Well, the only thing is they, they only play once a week, right? They don't have Europe. They don't. I mean, I could see Spurs getting really drained by playing Dortmund twice, and, you know, they, they don't have an easy run. And I could see Spurs falling away. Um, Leicester have it pretty much teed up for them. They do. But it's, you know, you can only control what's in your hands. If we go on a run and start winning every game for a while, they'll shit themselves. So it's kind of, it's not one thing or the other. Uh, The green shoot, yes, shoots yesterday. I mean, if they pan out, if we stick to that formation, to those players, and they start playing, 
and Welbeck starts to get a few goals as his confidence arises. Uh, Alexis is freed up. Uh, Ramsey's, you know, uh, I mean, what, what were our problems? Alexis and Ramsey couldn't score. Well, Alexis and Ramsey just scored. So you start going on a fucking run. You know, we can't score goals. Well, hang on. We scored two goals, two goals, two goals, and one goal in our last four Premier League games. And that's before we started getting any fluidity. We can score goals. So, um, you know, just cross. I understand where you're coming from, Elliot. If I was betting my house on it, I would bet we're fucked. But I'm not. Anything can happen. It's yeah. too. It's too early. To me, it's too early for this conversation to be in any way definitive. So, all right. So, so, so let me let me say this though. It if it doesn't pan out, and and there's a chance that it won't. How how bad is this for Arsene Wenger in terms of his performance this season if he can't get us over the line? I'm not worried about that now. It's too early okay, for that. Well, fine. For me. So let me say this. Uh, All right, t- Tim, Tim, let me, it, let me, it'll let me be ask v- you this uh, way. I'll give you a really short answer. It'll be very, very bad, but I'm not, I'm not going to put any cycles into that now. No, you're going to judge him in May. That's fair. Um, okay, so Tim. Or closer to May, yeah. Yeah, my, my question to you is, and this is the overriding takeaway I had from the North London Derby. Why, 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 why did he wait so long to change the midfield and make the change that seemed so obvious. I mean, for you, if he makes that change sooner, do we start picking up results sooner? And, and were you equally frustrated that he waited as long as he did to make a change? I think we'd have to wait a couple more games with that midfield, um, really. If if we have a couple, two or three games with it and it, it really starts to work and things start to click, then, yeah, that's got to go down as, as a big error, uh, not introducing Elneny into it earlier. Um, at the moment, it's a little bit early, um, I think, to make that judgment. But ultimately, if you're going to look at where, if Arsenal don't do it, if you're going to look at where they haven't done it, it's going to be that two months that we spent with Ramsey and Flamini in midfield. Um, and we lost a lot of points. Yeah, I don't know that Ramsey and Cochrane in midfield was a huge upgrade. No, I, I think it was slightly better I think I would say that the United and Swansea games were about as poor as it gets right yeah yeah but there were there were kind of other things going on and confidence issues and stuff we were kind of you know we've been saying for a while it was in the post wasn't it all of that like we were still kind of just about winning games in December in the new year but you could tell it was going to run out quite quickly we were running on fumes and uh, really that's that's period that's going to be most most costly um, and and don't you have to give a little bit of allowance to the possibility that he might be right? El Nenny need, needed a bit of time, and yeah. you know, El Nenny and Welbeck are the things that change everything for me. And I don't dispute that, Paul. But but I would say this: my issue was not so much that it needed to be El Nenny as that it needed to not be Ramsey in a midfield too, and that that he had to find either another body for midfield or a way to move Ramsey out of that position because that wasn't working. I, don't I even still think go back to the earlier thought that you don't just change things if you don't think it's going to be better. And, you know, I, I think the Coquelin-Ramsey pairing was not as good as I had hoped it would be. I think he was hoping it would be better. 
but I don't know what a better option would have been. But personally, I, I'd have tried the Chambers thing a little bit more. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, in the new year, he, he did give him a couple of games there, and albeit it was against quite bog-standard opposition at home. But, you know, we've not been winning against bog-standard opposition at home. I I might have given that a little bit more of a whirl, to be honest. I, I thought Callum Chambers looked, you know, I'm not going to tell you that he'd have turned our whole season around, but it might have been good enough, if you know what I mean. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally do know what you mean. I'll tell you something. I'll still hope to God that we can win this title. At the same time, I'm not going to pretend I wasn't really excited Manchester United lost to West Brom today because I don't... While I think the title is worth still talking about, I you certainly have to acknowledge that the top four, given our current form, is also not a certainty. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, let's leave it there. I, I, I think it could be two FA Cup games back-to-back and then Barcelona. So we'll have time maybe to see... I mean, Coughlin won't be available next game because of his stupid fucking red card. We may have time to see what the team starts to look like with a, a different system, a different midfield, and, and maybe we find the form and win nine games and win the title, and then I can feel like a right, proper cunt for dismissing it, but I won't care because I'll be too drunk from celebrating. Uh, Paul is on Twitter at Pausing in My Pants. Thanks, Paws. Woohoo! Yep. And uh, Tim, who survived the Derby and and lived to tell us about it, uh, is on Twitter at Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure, as always. My name is Elliot Smith. I assume by this point you have blocked Yankee Gunner. If not, that's where you do so on Twitter. Please leave us a review of the podcast. The best way for us to really take your uh, reviews on board is to give it five stars because then we'll read it and then you can write nasty shit in the review and be like, I hate that Elliot guy and Tim and Paul should do a breakaway podcast. It's awesome. Anyway, um, it's Hull at midweek so we will come to you after that maybe a couple different voices on as i understand we may have some scheduling issues with that but we'll be here we hope you will be as well up the arsenal talk to you later everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.